I'm your host, John Aberly. Special guest today, Dr. Stephen Levine. He is coming back. I uh, interviewed him a couple years ago. He is a psychiatrist out of the Princeton, New Jersey area, uh, Princeton Health Psychiatric. He also is cutting edge. Now, three years ago, four years ago when we interviewed him, he was beginning his work with ketamine used to help people with severe depression, be it bipolar depression, uh, other forms of depression, depression just brought on, clinical, whatever it may be, and he was having tremendous results. Flash forward now, and he is part of a group that owns several ketamine-type clinics, uh, ketamine treatment centers throughout the United States, one coming to the Philadelphia area, I think very soon, in Bryn Mawr. We're going to catch up today. We're going to find out what's changed the last few years, what's really working, and what the future holds. Doctor, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much, John. Thanks for having me back. Oh, I appreciate it. It's, it's, I appreciate you coming on. You know that. I enjoy going back and forth with you and learning some things. Let's start again for people who are just coming into this. What is a ketamine infusion? What are we looking at here? What is this doing for someone who is suffering almost catatonic-like depression? Sure. So, you know, in short, and we'll go into the details of this, but in short, it's, it's really a paradigm shift. It's a revolution in the way that we think about and treat depression. Because for 50 years now, the standard has been to take medicines by mouth every single day, to wait a long time for them to work, if they'll work, and many people aren't helped by them, and to have to put up with a lot of side effects. With ketamine, what we're looking at is a medicine that's very old, and we can go through the history of that some more again, mm -hmm. uh, but a medicine that's very old that we've had for a long time that's very safe that can be given intravenously, so that means through a line in the arm as a procedure, just periodically, so not every day, but once in a while. And this is a medicine that can potentially significantly help depression and anxiety within a matter of just hours after a first treatment. Now that's a big, big step up because as you alluded to a few moments ago, most medications most treatments that are there for depression, severe depression, there's a time lapse. You're looking at anywhere from weeks to a couple of months, correct? Correct. Weeks to a couple of months at a time when you don't have time to lose. That's right. And you're, and you're constantly, as a doctor, trying to balance and find the right medication. Will this work? Will that work? What milligrams? And time's ticking because people are... When they're in that state, that deep depression, they're suicidal in a lot of cases, correct? Correct. 
You know, when, when we talk about depression, people often don't think of it in the same way as we might think about something like cancer. You know, you hear cancer and you think that's a lethal illness. We better get on this quickly. There's no time to lose. People are dying of this. Well, with depression, the stakes are just as high. Uh, it's just quieter. You know, this is a lethal illness. People are dying of this every day. You know, we many people probably saw the news a couple of months back showing that suicide rates are at 30-year highs. And what do you attribute that to, if I have to ask? Are we looking at outside influences, or are people, I don't know, just, just becoming more depressed more often, and they're slipping into that that dark abyss and there's really no help for them or they think there's no help for them? I don't know. That's hard to say. Uh, you know, if we if we take the, the longer historical perspective, the times we live in now may not necessarily be so different in terms of how they feel to us than they have been in the past. So I think there are some factors that we haven't put our finger on yet that may explain that. But I think the important thing for people to know is that we are actually living in a pretty exciting time in psychiatry, in neuroscience, and brain science, because we're certainly not quite there yet. There is a lot that we still need to know. But we are on the cusp of some very, very exciting frontiers, and I think in the next decade or so, we are going to see just a complete sea change in the way that we think about mental illness and how we treat it. Now, that's interesting because knowing what I know about uh, psychiatry, knowing what I know about psychiatrists, and knowing what I know about dealing with uh, mental illness, mental health problems, there is no roadmap to this. A lot of this is your expertise, what you've learned, what you continue to learn in order to help people. There's no blood test to see if someone is depressed or has bipolar disorder or something. It really comes down to the skill of the doctor, correct? That is correct. That's where we are still today. But where we're headed, and I'm optimistic about this, where we're headed is having things like blood tests that may more accurately diagnose and lead to more specific treatments. We're not quite there yet now, but that is an active area of research right now, what they call biomarkers. And that's things like blood tests, brain scans, other more specific tests that can give more definitive answers about treatment. What is ketamine? So ketamine was developed way back in 1962. In 1962, they were seeking to find a medicine for surgery, for anesthesia for surgery, that was safer than what's otherwise available. And so they developed this medicine that's different than most of the medicines used for anesthesia. Most of them are pretty dangerous. They lower your drive to breathe. They can lower your blood pressure, your heart rate. So you really need to have very controlled conditions and a very skilled clinician administering this, an anesthesiologist. Ketamine works very differently than those medicines. It actually doesn't lower your drive to breathe or your heart rate or your blood pressure. So it can be given really in much less controlled conditions and be extremely safe. And so the, the proof of that was its use on the battlefield in the Vietnam War. It was known as the buddy drug because it was considered so safe that your relatively untrained buddy under uncontrolled conditions on the battlefield could administer this to you to, to treat physical trauma. And one segue from that, you know, a bit of a tangent, but interesting and timely right now, is something that uh, the military has found is that when, when, when 
soldiers in combat are injured on the battlefield and they are giving ketamine to to treat their physical pain, that they are less likely to go on to develop post-traumatic stress disorder. So we talk a lot about ketamine for depression and anxiety, but there's one specific application that we are not fully uh, addressing right now, and that is the use of ketamine for post-traumatic stress disorder, either prophylactically ahead of the development of it or after the fact. Now, that's interesting because having a military background, um, I always associated morphine with the battlefield type of medication that would be given uh, to someone who's in pretty bad shape, and then, you know, ketamine being a secondary source. Is this how it was discovered that ketamine had antidepressant-type of qualities to it because they were able to see the soldiers coming out of this and they, they, they weren't depressed, or a patient who had gone under to get a surgery, they were coming out and depression was lifted somewhat? Um, not, not exactly in this okay. case. You know, there have been hints of ketamine's antidepressant potential over the years. Uh, back in 1959, uh, a guy named George Crane was working with a medicine called decycloserine. Uh, it's an antibiotic and anti-tubercular. And he noticed that patients who had tuberculosis but also had depressed mood had improvements in their mood when they were treated with this medicine. Well, decycloserine has some overlap with how ketamine works. In the 1970s, there was a paper published talking about all the potential psychiatric applications of ketamine, including as an antidepressant. Then in the 1990s, a group comprised of researchers at Yale and the National Institute of Mental Health were studying ketamine for a number of different indications, but suspected that people with depression would respond differently to it than those who did not have depression. And they published the results of that first trial in 2000, and they really were, were quite shocking. In fact, they were so dramatic that people really didn't believe the results initially. Hmm. So six years went by before the next study was done. But what that early study showed was that people, even people who had been depressed for a very long time and had tried dozens or scores of medicines, potentially could have a significant reduction in their depression symptoms after a single dose. Interesting. Doctor, we're going to take a break, and we're going to come back, and I got a lot of questions, and you know that, because a lot of things have changed, and you are the expert. You are listening to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guest is Dr. Stephen Levine. He is part of the Ketamine Treatment Centers. We'll be right back. Back to Life on Edit. I'm your host, John Aberly. Today, my guest is Dr. Stephen Levine. We are talking about ketamine as a treatment for depression and PTSD. Dr. Levine is the founder and owner of the Ketamine Treatment Centers. There is one coming to the Philadelphia area, the Bryn Mawr area, soon. You can go to the doctor's website. And you can see where all the different ones are across the country. Doctor, real quick, can you give us your website? Sure. So uh, the company, as you said, is, is Ketamine Treatment Center. So the website is ktcpartnership.com. Now, let's tell the audience, I think we, we hear the term thrown around a lot, PTSD. He, she has PTSD from the war, 
from the car accident, from the traumatic experience of being in high school, whatever it may be. What exactly is PTSD? What does it do to the body and mind? Well, I like how you put that. What does it do to the body and the mind? Because it is a condition that really does show up both in the body and the mind. So typically somebody would develop PTSD after being exposed to a trauma. And that trauma is typically something that's outside the realm of typical daily human experience, often something that's life-threatening. And it leads to an anxiety disorder, and it shows up in the body as uh, an easy startle reaction. So if somebody you know, were to come up behind you, you would have a very exaggerated startle reaction. Uh, it can show up as an elevated heart rate, uh, chronically elevated heart rate. People typically have nightmares, and those nightmares are often uh, a re-experiencing of the trauma. That can happen during the waking hours, too, where people have a, a dreamlike, disconnected feeling where they're re-experiencing their trauma. Uh, it's uh, a, a condition that leaves people very fearful. They typically really shrink their worlds down to avoid being exposed to things that might trigger this anxiety response. So it takes away the quality of life. It really does. It's, it's a very, very limiting, disabling condition. So despite, you know, they have the trauma to begin with, which obviously has triggered the PTSD, then they're kind of triple punished because their quality of life just starts to shrink away. Yeah, in a very bitter way, it's the gift that keeps on giving because they continue to re-experience and be re-exposed to that trauma over and over. Now, we'll stay within a list here that I came across of what the ketamine treatments seem to be very helpful with. We said depression and we talk PTSD. It helps with OCD? It does. Uh, there have been a couple of published studies now on OCD. Response rates aren't quite as high as they are for depression, bipolar depression, other anxiety disorders, but we've had some very good outcomes. So you could add on, so this could be used as an add-on with other treatments that the patient may be using. Yes, yeah, we find that ketamine works very well with psychotherapy mm -hmm. generally, but especially for things like OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, as well as PTSD. Mm -hmm. Psychotherapy and ketamine go together like peanut butter and chocolate. Wow, would not have guessed that. Now, something I do find interesting, pain disorders like uh, fibromyalgia, is that to a lot of people, bad enough people don't understand mental illness, they don't understand depression, they don't understand bipolar disorder, they don't understand a lot of things. But you add in a pain disorder, then people really look at people and go, what the hell is wrong with you? What is this? Can you explain what a pain disorder is? Sure, and it's, it's not just one thing. There are many, many types of pain disorders, and we're at a crisis right now in medicine because we can't adequately treat that pain. Yeah, most people are aware that we have an opiate crisis in this country right now, and a lot of that has to do with the inappropriate prescribing of pain medicines. But it started with the fact that we just don't have great ways to treat pain at this point, and so opiates have been one of the few options for many people. And so many types of pain, we can roughly divide them into acute and chronic pain. So acute pain is you know, stubbing your toe, and of course injury is much worse than that. Chronic pain is pain that lasts well beyond the initial insult or injury. 
And then those pains can be divided into things like musculoskeletal pain, pain that's in your muscles, in your bones, or nerve pains. So pains that may have started in a localized area, but now are a result of signals being sent from the brain. And those can be very diffuse. They can be all over the body. And so, you know, these are just a few examples, but there are many, many types of pain, most of which we don't understand particularly well. Ketamine does have the potential to help certain pain conditions, particularly nerve pains. Okay. So there's a condition called complex regional pain syndrome that used to be called RSD, reflex sympathetic dystrophy. Mm-hmm. Higher doses, frequent doses of ketamine can be very helpful for that. With the dose that we use for depression, for anxiety, OCD, PTSD, we also can effectively treat fibromyalgia. And fibromyalgia is certainly something that we we need to know more about. Uh, It's a very poorly understood pain condition, but also one that can be very disabling and crippling. And many times people have fibromyalgia alongside of depression or an anxiety condition. And fortunately, we've, we've been able to see good outcomes with ketamine for all of those. I guess my question would be to that. Does the pain condition bring on the anxiety and depression, or did the anxiety and depression bring on the pain disorder? Sure, which came first, the yeah, chicken or the egg. I got it. That may be different for different people. Uh, you know, we don't know. It may be, you know, for some people that something like fibromyalgia is just one way that a mood disorder or anxiety can show up. Rather than them feeling like they have a depressed or anxious mood, it shows up in their body as physical discomfort. That may be one possibility, but ultimately we don't know. Let's go, well, I was going to jump ahead, I'm going to step back for a second. Let's talk about inflammation of the body. Now, from what I understand being a lay person, but being very interested in health and mind and the connection, inflammation within the body, within the brain, is like the worst case scenario. Brings on a lot of these problems, these disorders. Now, you're saying the ketamine, the infusion, is able to break that down. That's what's able to help the body heal in the mind? Well, that may be one part of it. Ketamine does a lot of things. Um, We can go through all of them, but one of the things that ketamine does is it is an anti-inflammatory and it helps to modulate the immune system. And independent of ketamine, inflammation as it relates to health generally is one of these subjects that's just fascinating to me because it's one of the things I was talking about earlier that's a frontier that we're exploring right now, which may take us much further in all of medicine. And, you know, there's, there's this principle called Occam's razor, mm-hmm. the idea that the simplest solution to a complex problem is, is typically the correct one, that usually it's not six different things going on, it's one unifying explanation. Well, we've gotten to the point in medicine where we don't have doctors that treat the entire person. We have this very siloed system where different doctors are responsible for different parts of your body. (laughs) And in some ways that's necessary because we know enough at this point that it's difficult for one person to be an expert in all of those areas. But the downside is is that we forget that the the foot bone's connected to the shin bone, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that all these systems, all these organs, all these systems must communicate in some way. And so, you know, we, we separate out uh, cardiovascular disease, uh, 
from musculoskeletal disease, from endocrine disease, from brain disease. But it may be that there are common things that underlie all of these things that connect them, and and uh, inflammation may be one that could be one of those explanations. Let's go in. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say that you know when when you have inflammation, first of all, that's you know our bodies need to be inflamed. That that has a protective a uh, protective role. We we get inflammation for a reason. It helps us to fight off things that are foreign or or potentially harmful to the body. But we're meant to mount an inflammatory response early, and then it's supposed to go away. But when you maintain a, a heightened inflammatory state for a long time, well, then that may cause damage. And that's when the body can potentially attack itself and cause things like autoimmune diseases. Uh, such as um, lupus. Exactly. Now, let's jump into the actual ketamine infusion. We're, we're going to stay with the infusion for the moment. I know there's another way, and we'll discuss that. Let's go step by step. I come into your office. I'm severely depressed. I'm bipolar depressed. I, I'm, I'm basically catatonic. My family had to basically carry me in. You look at me, what makes me a good candidate for this therapy? And then let's walk our way through it. Sure. So first of all, at least as, as we do things at ketamine treatment centers, before you even walked in or were brought in, we would know something about you because uh, we do, by phone, even before people come in, try to share a lot of information and make sure that appropriate people are coming in for consultation for treatment. Uh, we want to make sure that people have the right indications and don't have certain contraindications. So somebody who would be appropriately coming in would be somebody Somebody who has depression, who has bipolar depression, so that's somebody with who can have manic and depressive episodes but is currently depressed. Uh, somebody with an anxiety disorder like generalized anxiety disorder, PTSD, OCD, a pain condition like fibromyalgia, but also somebody who does not currently have manic symptoms if they're bipolar, somebody who's not having psychotic symptoms, those are things like hallucinations or delusional beliefs, somebody who does not have an unstable cardiac condition, so basically people need to be able to tolerate mild to moderate exercise in order to be healthy enough for this, people who are not actively abusing substances for a number of reasons. And so once you know somebody has been screened ahead of time and given a bunch of information, they would come in for a consultation. A psychiatrist would meet with them for at least 45 minutes to do an initial intake and gather information and prepare somebody for what it's like to have an infusion. And then the infusion itself from start to finish, from the time you walk into the office until the time you're ready to go, is about an hour and a half. And that involves having an intravenous line started, so it's a small catheter put into the arm so the medicine can drip in. The medicine goes in for about 40 to 45 minutes, and then there's a recovery period of about the same time, another 40 to 45 minutes. And by the time people leave, they are essentially feeling the way they felt when they walked in. They've recovered from the medicine. And a nice thing about that is that people typically don't have any side effects in between treatments. Hmm. So now, let's just say, okay, I get the treatment. At what point normally have you seen 
during the treatment process, that person start to change over from the depressive end that they're living in, now coming out of that and going into the more positive aspects of life? Well, that's one of the most remarkable things about this. People can potentially start to feel better and most typically start to feel somewhat better within two to four hours after that first treatment. Now, it can be outwards of 24 hours. Sometimes it can take a second treatment before the improvements are more obvious. But these are the kinds of time frames that we're looking at. And to be clear, and so people don't have unrealistic expectations, you know, sometimes people do feel dramatically better after this first treatment, and it's obvious. But for a lot of people, especially those who've been suffering for a long time and who may be very hesitant and skeptical of what, of what they're seeing, nervous that it might be a placebo response, whatever it might be, it wouldn't necessarily be that the next day they say, yeah, I'm really happy. Oftentimes, we see functional improvements Mm -hmm. ahead of subjective mood improvements, and that can be seen by the person himself or close family members or friends. You know, it should be obvious that this person can do much more than they've been able to do. They can get up and get out of bed. They can get to work. They can call a friend and actually get out of the house. They can start getting back to exercise. You know, they can functionally do a lot of the things that they've been told to do in order to help themselves feel better and that they would intellectually agree with, but they haven't been able to do because they've been so severely ill. Now, in a lot of cases, people that are severely depressed, correct me if I'm wrong, their motor skills slow down. Everything about them slows down. Processing things, uh, any kind of drive, uh, they lose interest in, in things that most people enjoy, sex, uh, maybe being with their kids, uh, the enjoyment of work, which very few people have. Sounds like you do, though, but very few <laughs> people have. Um, so this starts to come back. Now, may I ask, a uh, patient goes for the treatment. They're coming out of this. They've been going through it for a while. Can they go from your office to, say, the gym to work out? Is there any drawback to being physical right after having the uh, infusion? You know, we ask people to take it slow and not to drive right after the infusion, Mm -hmm. but also to do what they feel up to doing. And yes, many people do feel like they could go to the gym within a short time after a treatment, or if they're taking the morning off from work, that they're able to go back to work later that day. So, yeah, people really are not laid up for any amount of time. Most people do feel like they can do things afterwards. Doctor, we're going to take another break. And we're going to come back. We're going to keep going in this direction. Again, a lot of questions. You're listening to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guest is Dr. Stephen Levine. He is the founder and owner of the Ketamine Treatment Centers. We'll be right back. love Genesis. You gotta love Genesis. Phil Collins, not a great looking guy, but he's definitely had the life. I think he's been married like four times. Sorry, sorry, doctor. Just got to kind of chime in with that one there. Now I'll get back to reality. You're listening to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my special guest, and I'm going to say that because he's helping a lot of people, Dr. Stephen Levine. He is the founder and owner of the Ketamine Treatment Centers and they have a center coming soon to the Philadelphia Bryn Mawr area. Dr. Levine uses the drug ketamine 
through right now infusion to help people with various different types, degrees of depression, PTSD, OCD, and pain management. And doctor, getting back to this part of it, it's about an hour and a half, you said, correct? Correct. Okay. What is the average time it lasts, the actual infusion, and then someone has to come back? Well, that's a good question, and it's actually a point of a lot of misunderstanding hmm. because there have been a lot of popular press articles lately that have talked about all of the promise of ketamine and how effectively it works quickly, but the limitation being that it doesn't last long enough. But what they're basing that on were some of the first studies of ketamine that gave people only one treatment. So that's pretty unfair because one treatment, if that were to last forever, that would be a cure. And unfortunately, we don't have cures at this point. We have treatments. And so there is no treatment out there that you would take it once and then your symptoms would be gone forever. So, so saying that ketamine is short-lasting based on one treatment is, is pretty unfair and unrealistic. But if we follow the course of research, the early studies looked at just a single treatment with ketamine and people had significant relief for anywhere from a day or two up to a week or two in most. So pretty short-lasting. But what they looked at next was doing a group of treatments in the beginning. And the pattern that was used in most of the research was doing a total of six treatments over the course of two weeks. There have been some that have looked at it over three weeks instead. What those have shown is that it makes the response more durable and longer lasting. And so on average, if somebody had that pattern, it would last about three weeks. But there's a big range, anywhere from more like two weeks to several months. What we found at ketamine treatment centers after treating thousands of patients over the past several years is that if you give people single booster treatments infrequently, so that can be anywhere from four weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks in between treatments, then they're able to maintain those gains. Mm. Now, that's, that's mostly if you're thinking about ketamine itself. But we're encouraging people not to think of ketamine as a magic bullet and just let ketamine do the work. One of the things we're working with patients on is as soon as they start feeling even a little bit better, to start doing other things, other things in the wellness realm to help to support those gains. Yep. And what we found over time is that people who really take that to heart and don't just rely on the ketamine wind up having the longest lasting results. So the people who get back to exercise and healthy eating and get back to work and re-engage with family, people who engage in psychotherapy, uh, maybe they found it not to be effective in the past, but now under these conditions it's much more effective, et cetera, then those are folks who oftentimes have a much, much longer interval in between needing treatments. Well, I've often said uh, medication can only take you so far. Exactly. Then the rest of it's up to you. Maybe it gives you the foundation, and then you have to take it from there and do what you need to do, which is educate yourself, uh, find alternative, maybe vitamin supplements, working out, whatever it may be that helps you work in conjunction with the medication. Now, what are we looking at for price? Got to ask that question. And... Is insurance now picking this up more often than not? Well, 
so price-wise, uh, it, it varies a bit across the country. Uh, you'll find prices as low as uh, 300 some odd dollars per treatment, but to anywhere up to a couple of thousand dollars per treatment, mm. which, which frightens me. Uh, we charge $450 per treatment, uh, and that's something we're always working on and, and trying to lower, actually. And what we found is that if people have out-of-network benefits with their insurance, they can often get the office visit component of coming to see us covered. And so a lot of our patients do get a chunk of that reimbursed to them. So, you know, despite that, it can be something that's expensive for a lot of people. One of the ways to think about this, though, is that many of the folks who are coming to see us are losing money in other ways. They're not able to work. They're not able to, to function in any number of ways. And hopefully they're going to be rapidly enabled to get back to functioning in life. And so uh, there's the economic gains there. You know, the World Health Organization lists depression as the number one cause of disability wor- worldwide. So that's, uh, that's a lot of dollars. So, you know, to, to make a, a long answer shorter, uh, you know, this is a treatment that, you know, can be pricey for people up front, but there's a good chance people will get some of that reimbursed and in the long term uh, hopefully puts them in a much better financial position. Yeah, you just worry that people are in a consistent pain situation, be it a physical pain or a mental health type pain where it's depression, bipolar type depression, or it may be these people are desperate. And if they find a treatment that works, it's like, oh my God, the window shade's gone up. You don't want to see outside, you know, you don't want to see people taking advantage of that situation. Everyone's got to make a buck. No problem with that. You just don't want to see, as you were saying a moment ago, you know, $2,000 for a treatment and insurance isn't picking it up. And I like to think that the insurance companies are taking a deeper look at this type of uh, therapy uh, because it can end up saving them money. Well, exactly. And so it's exactly why I think they're very interested in this, because from their perspective, this is actually very cheap compared to the alternatives. And for a couple of reasons. First of all, most of the newer brand name medicines, which are the ones that wind up getting prescribed the most, for better or for worse, are very expensive. And that's, so that's hundreds or thousands of dollars to them month after month after month, or the cost of a hospitalization, or the cost of a procedure called TMS, which is expensive, et cetera. This is actually pretty cheap to them. And then, you know, another important thing is that because if you're going to respond to ketamine, you're going to know very quickly. You know, we, we won't continue typically to treat somebody past about two treatments if they're not showing some signs of response. So people are only continuing to pay for this treatment if they're getting benefit from it. Unlike other treatments where you're continuing it for weeks to months and you don't even know if it's going to help you. You're constantly trying to play with the medication, find the right dosage, find the right medication. I guess my next question would be success rate. I know it's pretty high. Give it to us. Sure. And it's evolved over time. You know, when we first started treating people with this medicine, this was back in 2011, 
I was I was pretty nervous of that. <laughs> I bet you were. <laughs> there was nobody else doing this, uh, and so I, I was extremely conservative. I was very careful. I was only treating people as as a treatment of last resort. So these are people who had tried absolutely everything else and hadn't responded, and were continuing to suffer. And this is who I was treating. And those folks responded at about a seventy percent rate. Wow. These days, now that we've treated all these thousands of people and we've seen good results and we haven't seen a single adverse medical result, uh, which is important to note, uh, so we've seen how safe it is, we've seen how effective it is, we're now treating some folks who are not treatment of last resort. You know, these are people who've tried a, you know, a couple of medicines and either haven't responded or couldn't tolerate side effects or their, their illness is dragging on and they're not getting relief. And with them, the response rates are higher, uh, probably at least 80 to 85 percent. Wow. That, now, now, let's step back for a second. You go into a doctor, psychiatrist. Some people go to their primaries, which I never suggest. You wouldn't take your Ferrari to Midas. You take yourself to the best psychiatric doctor you could find if they're in that kind of way. Um, I guess there is that, you know, oh, my God, I found something, but how am I going to make this work? Then you read 80, 85 percent success rate. That, that's got to scare some of the pharmaceutical companies because most psychiatric drugs don't come anywhere near that rate of success. Well, it hasn't scared them. It's enticed them. Ah, uh, there I take are, it back. Okay. Yeah, there are many companies now seeking to develop medications that work like ketamine, but aren't ketamine, so that they can patent them. And there are, <laughs> se- yeah. <laughs> and there are several in the pipeline right now. Uh, well, let's go then. Again, the success rate, the drawback. The drawback is it's almost like having dialysis. And you have to go once every, we'll say, three to four weeks to do this. It's time out of your normal day, which I think most people wouldn't care about because they're feeling better. What's the next way that's being researched in order to administer the drug? Sure. So, you know, first of all, it's not quite like dialysis because with dialysis, most people have to go multiple times a week and be there for most of the day. So, yes, people do have to come uh, a few times a week initially, just in the first couple of weeks, though. But then we're talking about having a treatment once, again, once every four to 12 weeks or so, and with only about an hour and a half out of their day. But, uh, But you're right, that can be somewhat burdensome to have to come to an office for treatment. And so uh, one of the, the questions has been, is there another way to administer this where people could perhaps do this at home and not have to come to an office for a procedure? If we're talking about ketamine itself, then it is my strong opinion that it should only be given in a supervised medical setting. This is a medicine that, first of all, does have some potential to be abused. It's also a medicine that makes you sensitive to the mindset that you're in and the setting in which you're having it. And so it's important for that to be in a controlled setting in order for it to be a good experience. And so even though you could get ketamine in a nasal form or in oral form, uh, to me, if it's going to be given in the office and shouldn't be taken at home, then you might as well give it in the best studied, the one that has the, the way that has the best evidence that's most controllable. When we give it IV, we can stop the procedure any time if we have to. 
and has the most reliable absorption. So we know how much of the medicine going in is actually going to affect that person's system. Doctor, hold on again. We're going to take the last break. We're going to come back. We're going to tie it up with some other things, uh, different types of medications that might work in conjunction with the ketamine therapy. You're listening to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guest is Dr. Stephen Levine. He is the founder and owner of the Ketamine Treatment Centers. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Life on Ed. I'm your host, John Aberly. I think I've seen Genesis eight, nine times. I think I've seen Phil Collins three or four. If they ever decide to come back with Peter Gabriel, I think I'll have to spend the big bucks. I think I will. I love Peter Gabriel. But he was a little strange back in the day when they were he was dressing up in weird outfits and stuff. But other than that, post like nineteen seventy seven, Peter Gabriel's okay. <laughs> today, my guest today, Dr. Stephen Levine, he is the owner, founder, founder, owner, Ketamine Treatment Centers. Doctor, please give us your website. It's ktcpartnership.com. Now, the, we're just going to recap for the people here. Using the medication ketamine as an infusion into the body for people who have severe depression, even it sounds like moderate depression. They have maybe a pain problem. They have OCD, PTSD, very important there. This treatment appears to have in the 80-85% success rate. And that is almost, well, that is unheard of when it comes to using medications for different psychiatric conditions or pain controlling conditions. Doctor, other medications in use. It was funny, we talked yesterday uh, real quick and we got into a discussion about the, the antibiotic monocycline, which is used usually by teenagers or young adults who are battling with acne issues. You pointed out to me, and I did not know this, monocycline has antidepressant properties to it. You know, this is an example of an older medicine that's long been generic that is not being investigated by a pharmaceutical company to get an FDA-approved indication, but nonetheless is being studied in research. And so it's an off-label use, uh, but there, there is evidence that minocycline may help depression. And we're not exactly sure, as, as we're not sure with many medications, what's behind that. But part of the answer may be that in addition to being an antibiotic, minocycline also has anti-inflammatory properties. Now, that got me kind of messing around last night looking things up, because that's how I am. Because, <laughs> you know, you, you stimulated my mind on this, and... You know, the Olympics are winding down, so I you know, kind of play with the computer a little bit. What I found was, uh, with monocycline, of course it has side effects. In some cases it can disrupt, or it does disrupt, the bacteria, the good and the bad within the, the stomach of people. Correct. And I saw uh, probiotics kind of went with this, that there are doctors that are cutting edge like yourself that are looking to high-end good probiotics as a adjunct therapy to whatever else a person may be doing. If they add the monocycline in, I would assume a good probiotic would be important. 
and they seem to have anti-inflammatory properties as well. Do you see that as a positive? Well, you know, probiotics, it's an interesting subject because, you know, another really hot topic in medicine these days, not just in psychiatry, is the concept of the microbiome. The microbiome is the collection of critters, uh, (laughs) microorganisms. This is uh, bacteria and viruses and parasites that that live in our guts, that live on our skin. And if we're talking about the amount of DNA or the number of cells actually outnumber our human cells, uh, which is uh, a fascinating other topic. But, uh, you know, recognizing that it's led to a lot of research, and there's something called the Human Microbiome Project going on right now, which Mm. should give us a lot more information about this. But it's led to a lot of research into what is, you know, a healthy composition of organisms in your body and how do we influence that in a way that promotes health. And so one of the ways that's uh, been explored is by using probiotics. So these are supplements that you can take that promote healthy bacteria in your gut. The limitations right now, even with high-end ones, is that we don't know exactly what those proportions should be. Uh, Should they be different for different people or under different conditions? What's the best way to deliver them? In a lot of cases with the probiotics, uh, you swallow them, and most of the, the good stuff that you're drinking doesn't quite make it to where you want it to go. And so, you know, it may be the best possible solution that we have available to us now, but it's likely that going forward, we're going to have better delivery systems and better understandings of how we do that in a more targeted way. So we really are on the cutting edge. I think we are. So it's really changing to where 40, 50, 60 years ago, your options were pretty limited. Uh, It was a shameful thing if a person was suffering from depression. It was shameful to the family. So your field of practice is evolving into something that's very, very important. I'm optimistic. And, you know, a lot of the folks who come to see us at ketamine treatment centers come in thinking of this as their last hope. And one of the messages we reinforce to them over and over, something we really want them to hear from us is, we're probably not going to change your mind about that right now. Right? You're, you're feeling the way that you're feeling, and you think that there may not be anything else out there for you. But we don't agree with you. (laughs) We don't agree because we think that there are many more options. There's always something else. And we are on the cusp of a lot of new important things. And so we want to deliver a message of hopefulness. Hopefully, our treatment will help you. And in many cases, it will. But even if it doesn't, you're not out of options. There are many other things that are available to us now, and there are many, many more things that are going to be available to us in the very near future. Is there an age limit to this? If I have a nine-year-old boy who's suffering from severe depression, for whatever reason, would, would that boy be a candidate for this therapy? point, we're treating people 18 and up. Okay, so you're and, keeping it, okay. and all the way up. We've treated as old as 89. Okay. <laughs> but uh, uh, there is a lot of clamoring. Uh, a lot of people have requested the making this treatment available to, to people under the age of 18. And that's something we're investigating. Uh, we want to be careful. We don't know if there may be different effects on the still-developing brain as opposed to the adult brain. We also want to be realists and understand that 
the other options are also things that could potentially be harmful to the developing brain and haven't been studied in children. And so it's not as if we're comparing you know, this to other treatments that we know are safe and effective necessarily. So we're looking at both sides of that, but for the moment, well, we're treating 18 and up. Is physical size, is that important to how much of the medication is used? I'm coming in at, you know, 250 pounds at 6'4", and, you know, I'm not a heavy guy. I'm, just, you know, muscular. I work out. Does that make a difference compared to someone, to a young woman who might weigh 115 pounds? Uh, it does, actually. Okay. So with a lot of, you know, uh, medicines that are in pill form that you take as a prescription, it's going to be a similar dose no matter what size you are. With ketamine, it's the dose is directly related to your size. We base the dose on your body weight. Is there, for side effect, have you seen this where a person who's bipolar comes in and they're in a depression, which only really brings a person in anyway. When they're hypomanic, they don't come anywhere near the place, I would assume. <laughs> exactly. uh, that's how it works. Could you accidentally flip them from depression to hypomania or even mania? Have you seen that happen? Well, that's a good question and, and one we get asked a lot, and it's an important one because there's always some hesitation about using antidepressants for people who have bipolar disorder mm -hmm. because of that risk. Now, if we look at the scientific evidence, it shows that the risks of, of pushing somebody into mania by giving them an antidepressant when they're depressed are actually lower than, than we previously thought. In many of those cases, it's probably the natural course of the illness. They would have probably developed mania anyway, even if they weren't given the antidepressant. Uh, and, and I'm going to cut you off here because I've got sure. a minute, but I want to ask this. Wouldn't the use of a mood stabilizer, lamictal, or lithium help control that possible flip? It would, uh, especially something like lithium, and it's why if we're treating somebody with bipolar disorder, we speak with them about that, and, we, and we're careful about these risks nonetheless, and we let them know that, yes, a mood stabilizer like lithium would help protect against that possibility. Excellent. Excellent. So as far as whether we've seen that, mm -hmm. there certainly have been a handful of cases where somebody that we've treated over time with bipolar disorder has had a hypomanic episode, whether that was because of the treatment or whether it was because of the natural course of illness is hard to say. Excellent. Doctor, we're going to wrap it up. And what I want you to do uh, is give us again your website information. Absolutely. So it's ktcpartnership.com, Ketamine Treatment Centers. Excellent. My guest today has been Dr. Stephen Levine. He is the founder and owner of the Ketamine Treatment Centers. Please go to his website, Take a look. If you're suffering from depression, OCD, pain management issues, go take a look at this. It seems to be the cutting-edge way. The success rate appears to be very high. Doctor, again, I appreciate you coming on. You've made a lot of progress in the last four years. Thank you so much. You know, if you ever do a marathon episode where you go 24 hours of continuous talk, I'm your guy because I love to talk about this for hours on it. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, we can we can bounce around on a lot of topics with this. I, as I said to you off the air while we were uh, real quick, um, that was a business idea, and I think there's something there with that, with what I said to you. It sounds like a just a focus point to go at. My thoughts. <laughs> That's it. Doctor, I look forward to talking with you soon. Thank you again for coming on. Thank you so much. Thanks,